0: Every Sunday, we put the donuts away five minutes before service starts, and we do that to encourage all of us to be ready when the worship service begins at 10 a.m. It is a known fact that it is more difficult to sing, which we're commanded to do with a maple donut in your mouth. (laughs) It has been brought to the elders' attention that a number of you men in particular have undermined our plan by finding the put away donuts in the kitchen and taking them once the worship service has started. Some of you did that this morning. It's obvious. A look of shame has come across your face. Crumbs in your beard. So the elders got together and talked about how we were going to handle this. And so I thought I should let you know that starting today, we tasked Greg Morrow, one of our elders, with licking each one of those donuts once removed from the foyer. So there's that. Every church has its problems. The church in Corinth was no different, which was located in modern day Greece. They had their own issues in the first century. It's one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to them. He also wrote to answer questions that they had. In fact, he's answering a lot of those questions in the chapter that we are studying right now. God willing, wrapping up today, chapter 7. In the first 16 verses of this chapter, Paul gave personally practical instructions to the Corinthians, to married believers, to unmarried believers, to married believers, married to unbelievers. Then in verses 17 through 24, he passed along a guiding principle of his, which was, do not seek to change or control your circumstances it would be better for you to seek to glorify God in the circumstances he has you in. And then in the last section of the chapter, verses 25 through 40, which again, we will wrap up today, God willing, Paul offers more practical help along with making clear the deep concern that was behind his advice and counsel. Which is that the Corinthian Christians would be undivided in their devotion to Jesus. But that would be my deep concern for everyone that I love. That they would be undividedly devoted to Jesus There, there isn't anything more important. That would be my deep concern for my wife. That would be my deep concern for my children. That would be my deep concern for all of you. It should be your deep concern for the people that you love. After all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, For what will it profit a man... If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. And so we want those we love to be wholeheartedly, undividedly devoted to Jesus. Because if that isn't a reality, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Those you love could have the whole world, could have... Everything the world has to offer. All the success in the world. All the money in the world. All the fulfilling relationships in the world. But if they don't have Jesus, then according to Jesus, they give up. They forfeit their soul. So they win at every other game, but they forfeit in the most important one. And so it is our deep concern for those we love that they would be undivided in their devotion to Jesus. In today's text, verses 32 through 40, Paul continues to offer his Christ-centering counsel while also speaking very realistically about the potential distractions of marriage and family. So much application. Whether you are here today and you are single, or whether you are married, which of course is all of us, there is so much to take from Paul's practical words here, and how realistically and honestly and frankly, he speaks about singleness and marriage and family. So as we move forward, remember, this is God's word that we're studying today. And in God's Word alone, we learn who we are, and more importantly, who God is, and most importantly, how we may be saved. So let's begin with prayer. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, through your holy word and by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give the eyes of faith to any unbelievers here this morning so that they would see and love you. And for those of us who are believers, we pray you would overwhelm us with your perfections so that we would hate sin and love you more deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, if you are using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 898. And if you are able, I would encourage you to put your Bible in your lap, your phone in your pocket. Some of you have your Bible on your phone. I understand that. So let's begin with the middle of our text. With verse 35. Look to the middle. And let's be reminded of Paul's deep concern as he writes. Here is why he says what he says. Verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order. And here's his main concern to secure your undivided devotion To the Lord. So he's got married people in mind. He's got single people in mind. He has everyone in mind, and his concern is the same for all of them and all of us who are here today. And it is that they would be sold out, all in, undivided in their devotion to the Lord, and the Lord is Jesus. The word translated undivided means unhindered. Unhindered. It means not slowed or blocked or interfered with. And so Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind in other words our love for God should be unhindered and in Luke nine twenty three, Jesus said if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me that is a picture of undivided devotion to Jesus following him and denying yourself No matter what the cost, he describes it as taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following him. That is Paul's deep concern to secure undivided devotion to Jesus. Okay, with that concern in mind, let's go back up to the beginning of that paragraph and the beginning of our text. Verse 32, where Paul returns to an argument. If you've been here, we've heard this before. He returns to an argument he made in verses 25 through 28. In those verses, he counseled engaged couples to put off their wedding. And ended by giving this reason in verse 28. Those who marry will have worldly Troubles, and I would spare you that. He said, Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Well, what worldly troubles? That's what we were left wondering. What kind of worldly troubles come along with being married? Paul was single when he writes. Paul was single and he experienced no shortage of worldly troubles. So it's obvious that Paul means worldly troubles unique to marriage. He's not saying if you're not married, you'll have no worldly troubles. And if you're married, you'll have worldly troubles. Paul wasn't married, had lots of worldly troubles. So there's some kind of trouble that Paul had in mind in verse 28 that's unique to marriage. So what are they? He explains in verses 32 through 34. So verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. In verse 28, He wanted to spare them worldly trouble. And here He wants them free from anxieties. And I think He's talking about the same thing. He has the same thing in mind. There is trouble and anxiety that is unique to marriage. Let me say that again. There is trouble and anxiety that is unique to marriage, which is what he's explaining here. So Paul is comparing the trouble and anxiety of a married person in these verses with the trouble and anxiety of an unmarried person. And what we see is they're different. Some might overlap, but there's some distinction here. There's a difference between married troubles and Unmarried troubles. So let's read the second half of verse 32, where Paul begins with the unmarried man. The unmarried man, Paul writes, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So this is not a sinful anxiety. This is not wrong. There is an anxiety that the Bible talks about, like in Philippians chapter 4, Like Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 6. There is a sinful kind of anxiety that is rooted in distrust of God, that is rooted in disbelief, and it leads to unreasonable fretting and worry. That's not the anxiety that Paul is talking about here. This man, the unmarried man, he cares deeply about. He cares deeply about. He is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. Well, what about the married man? Paul points him out next. The married man is, verse 33, anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And so his interests are divided. Now. Worldly things here does not mean bad things. Worldly does not mean badly here. Sometimes it does. It simply means here things that are part of this world. Things that are part of this world, Christian, that won't be a part of the world to come. Like marriage. So these are not things of the world. These are things in the world. So there's stuff that is of the world, and that usually means sinful. And then there are things that are just in the world. It is a reality of this life, and that are things like marriage. As he talks about this married man, that would be things like a wife. It's also not saying that the married man doesn't care about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. It's not that kind of a contrast. The unmarried man, well, he cares about Jesus. And the married man, well, we know he does not. All he cares about is his wife and how to please her, to keep her happy. That's not what Paul means. This is an additional concern. It's not an either or. It's not an instead of concern. This is, realistically, this is an additional concern. Of course, if this married man is a Christian, he cares deeply about the things of the Lord. And he cares deeply, he's anxious about pleasing the Lord. But unlike the unmarried man, the married man also, he's anxious about earthly things. And rightly, like pleasing his wife. This is the same for women. He points out the unmarried woman in verse 34. She, like the unmarried man, is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. And she is contrasted to the married woman who is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So what are we to make of all this? Well, we shouldn't forget Paul's concern, which is their undivided devotion to the Lord. Married or single, that's his concern. We've established that. Their undivided devotion to the Lord. Then we also shouldn't forget the context. Remember the context in which Paul is writing them. Remember their... Specific circumstances that they find themselves, the Corinthians, they find themselves in a distressing crisis. Remember, they find themselves in a distressing crisis, as Paul writes. So Paul's counsel is that the unmarried remain unmarried. And the reason he gives here is that marriage increases earthly trouble and anxiety, and he would spare them that in light of the present calamity. Don't add trouble upon trouble, he's saying. There's already trouble, there's already many things to be anxious about. There was a famine, we know, harsh persecution of Christians was beginning. And would only build and increase for the next 15 years. So, again, this is not advice for all believers or directly to all believers. It's his advice to believers in this present distress in Corinth. Nevertheless, there are important realities about marriage here that are revealed. And are helpful for us. Now some of you may have a present crisis. Some of you may have a present distress. And you should, like the Corinthians, take that into account. If you're single. If you're close to marriage or considering marriage. And there may be things that need to be in order. And it may not be a good time for you. But even if it's not the case. For those of us who are married. For those of us who are not. There are very important realities about marriage and family that Paul points out here. Worldly trouble and anxiety. For those of you who are married. You know exactly what Paul is talking about. Don't you? You know exactly what Paul is talking about. Marriage increases anxiety. Marriage usually leads to children. Children. Children multiply anxiety. Francis Bacon wrote, Children sweeten labors, but they make misfortunes more bitter. It's true. Children make your life better. They do, but they make the sorrows even more sorrowful. I can't leave my house without thinking about my wife and kids. Whether I'm leaving for an hour, whether I'm leaving for several hours, whether it's the work day, I find that very seldom are there minutes that are strung together where my wife and my children are not in some way on my mind. When I have traveled away from them overnight, which I seldom do, I am thinking about them and concerned for them nearly the entire time. It's one of the reasons I don't like to travel. And my level of anxiety, you can imagine, is nothing compared to Christians. It's nothing compared to the anxiety that she feels over her children when she's with them, which is even multiplied when they are away from her. This is not a bad thing, and Paul won't say that. He's never going to say this is a bad thing. It is simply a reality. The married man has more responsibility, he has more opportunities to fail. He has more worries, more people to please, more bills, and more insurance. And he has less freedom. He has less time, less flexibility, and less money. At one point, I can remember, it cost me $10 to go to the movies. It now costs $100 to go to the movies. At one point, my wife and I, to our children's, I'm sure shock, we were spontaneous. Spontaneous. And now I do not sneeze unless it's in my calendar. (laughs) There is so much to do all the time, and there is so little time. So a married man or woman's interests, Paul is right, they are divided. Absolutely. If you're married, our interests are divided. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. And that will be explained later. But this is Paul speaking very realistically about marriage. I think we could use a dose of that in the church today. We could use a realistic perspective of marriage in a culture, specifically a Christian subculture, where marriage and family is often idolized. Marriage is wonderful, and Christians should say so, but marriage is not everything. You are not an incomplete Christian without marriage. Marriage will not fix your problems. Marriage should not, when I thought of our young girls in this church, marriage should not be a young girl's greatest hope and dream. It just shouldn't be. A hope, sure. A desire, sure. A dream, a fantasy about one day, what it will be and what it will look like, sure. But not her greatest hope and dream. How will she serve Jesus? What will she do for Christ? How will He sell out How will he be undivided in his devotion to Jesus? That's number one. To those of you this morning who are single, young, older, you are free right now from this particular trouble and anxiety. I know many young people who are single and want to be married, they think about what they don't have But it'd be good for them to think about what they do have, what they are free from, free from particular trouble and anxiety. What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your talent? What are you doing with your treasure? Is Christ at the center of your plans or is your future spouse? How are you leveraging your freedom? Who are you serving? Who are you ministering to? If one day you end up married, you will never have the kind of freedom that you have now to leverage in service to Jesus. When we adopted our daughter Avery, many of you were a part of our church then. This church rallied around our family, you'll remember. There's pictures of it on the other side of this wall. This church rallied around our family and literally did anything and everything to help. And many young women in this church in particularly worked tirelessly but let me tell you about one. Who was single at the time and used her singleness for good I went over this so many times in my office <laughs> because I didn't want to delay this or make the sermon even longer. But her and some friends came up with a baking for baby, you will remember. And these women, including my wife, made and sold cupcakes, cookie dough, and pies. I mean, an insane amount. An insane amount of Cupcakes and cookie dough and pies and one girl. And many of you know who she is. She would get up at the crack of dawn and make pounds and pounds of cookie dough. Before work. And then after a long day at work, she would go to Winco and buy more ingredients and begin the process all over again. nonstop for about four months, she poured her money and all of her time into cookie dough and baking for a baby. I don't have a better example of a Christian leveraging her singleness for good. Now. She is married today, and God has given her and her husband two beautiful children, and there is no way she could help today the way she helped then, and that is, listen, a good thing. That was a season to leverage for God's glory, and now is another season to leverage for God's glory as she is being gladly spent still in a different way but still for God's glory. So for those of you who are single today and are free from the unique trouble and anxiety of marriage and family, what are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your talent? What are you doing with your treasure? Is it about you? Is it about your glory or God's glory? Is it about the approval of others or is it about the approval of God? I'm talking to children children. I'm talking to middle school students. I'm talking to high school students and college students. You are free from the trouble and anxiety that is unique to marriage and family. And one of the reasons in God's providence that you are free from that now is that you would use that time that you would use it in a unique and special way for the glory of God. Don't just prepare for what you're going to do next. Do something now. Where does God have you now? What are your opportunities now? Who can you serve? Who can you share Christ with? Who can you lead to Christ? Who can you be praying for? Who can you be loving Let's move on to verse 36. The Corinthians find themselves in the middle of a devastating famine and at the beginning of first persecution. And in light of all that, Paul is counseling these singles to think twice about marriage that is good and that is wise counsel. But then he makes this concession. In verses 36 through 38. This is very important. Remember, Paul is not giving these couples command. He is giving them counsel. Remember verse 28? If you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So he's saying something very similar in this concession, beginning in verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed. If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. That's very similar to what he said about passions of the flesh in verses 2 and verse 9 of this same chapter. In other words, if postponing this wedding to Avoid trouble actually gets you into more trouble. He's saying, go ahead and marry. But, verse 37, Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So if you're controlling your passions and you're resolved in mind and heart and you're able to stay pure, Paul says, keep her as your betrothed. In other words, put off this wedding in light of the present distress. And then here's his bottom line statement regarding this counsel, verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. That is his summary to those engaged couples who find themselves in an unusually difficult crisis. If you need to marry, go for it, he's saying. This is counsel, not command. If you need to marry, go ahead. But I think, Paul is saying, it would be best for you to stay single. Now, finally, the last paragraph of the chapter. With the present distress in mind to those who still decide to marry, Paul knows that some would lose their husbands. Persecution would intensify. And some brave men would do what they should do. And they would stand up for Christ. And some of them were going to die. Paul knew that and many of them did. Which would make their new young wives widows. And so Paul writes in verse 39... A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. She is free to marry again if she would lose her husband. She is free to marry again, but only in the Lord. I think Samuel Lewis Johnson, he interprets this phrase correctly. So let me read you what... He says about this phrase, in the Lord. Paul writes that it's all right to be married again if the husband dies, but only in the Lord. Now, this is generally taken to mean only marry a Christian, but it really doesn't say that. Only in the Lord doesn't specifically say marry a Christian. It says marry as befitting a Christian who is in the Lord. In the Lord means, if the person whose husband dies is going to marry, then marry like a Christian would marry. That is, in harmony with the faith you profess. Which is actually more strict than saying, marry a Christian. And then next, Paul does it again. He he flips the coin over and says the other side, Yet in my judgment, she is happier... If she remains as she is. Did you see how Paul writes? It's this this two-sided coin and he just keeps flipping it over, saying one side, saying the other. He does not, he knows he's not giving a command from God. This isn't a command from God. You're engaged. God says, call off the wedding. Don't get married. He's trying to give them wise counsel. And so he's careful how He writes. He makes clear that he's not ordering people around. This is ultimately between them and God. He uses terms like my judgment, in my judgment, and he says things like I think. To be sure, if Scripture was clear, Paul would speak very differently, and he does. But in this case, because it's counsel, he's careful how he writes. This is much of the Christian life. There are times we give commands to people. There are times that we are very clear with directives to Christians that we know and love. God's word says this. You need to do this. This is not a discussion. This is not something for you to consider or think about or pray about. God's word says, do this. You need to do this. And God's word says, do not do this. So you need to stop doing that. Sometimes it's very clear and there are commands. But there are other times, I find most of the time, we give counsel. And there is a difference between obeying a command and exercising wisdom. So here's an application to consider. Some of you speak too boldly about your personal opinions and not boldly enough about your biblical convictions. Consider that. That some of you may speak too boldly about your personal opinions where you could give counsel and opinion and your judgment, but you don't speak boldly enough where scripture is clear. Not boldly enough about your biblical convictions. We would be wise to sort out which is which and temper our words and tone accordingly. We often get those mixed up. And then Paul concludes. He concludes with this uh, strange sentence. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That's a weird sentence, isn't it? What what does Paul mean? He sounds like he's not sure. Sure. And it sounds sort of random. Well, most of the commentators think Paul is being snarky here, which I like. He is probably responding to some of his haters in Corinth who speak contrary to Paul, claiming to have a new word from the Holy Spirit. We're pretty sure that was going on in Corinth. They were arguing with what Paul had said. He's gone now. And so they were arguing with what Paul said. And and they were bolstering that and giving it weight by saying it's a new word that we have from the Spirit. And so Paul responds with, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. I like that. So that's the text. I hope we understand it. Paul has basically said, in view of the present distress, marriage is good, but singleness is better. That's basically what he said. He said that in view of the present crisis and calamity, in my opinion, marriage is still good, but singleness is even better. So this would be a good time for us to ask the question, so what? It's always our goal when we read God's Word, isn't it, to understand it and to apply it. What does this mean and what does this mean for me? What needs to change in my life? So in considering this, so what? The application for single people is pretty clear. I hope those of you who are single have found it encouraging. It's clear. He's advocating for singleness, so it's very clear how being single encourages undivided devotion to the Lord. But what about married people? What about married couples? What about those of you who are married? How does this text apply to you? That, that is most of our church. Most of us here are married, and so this is the question. Can you be married and still have undivided devotion to Jesus? He's made it very clear how singleness is. But can you be married and have undivided devotion to Jesus? Of course. Of course you can. Paul is not saying that Only single people can be undivided in their devotion to Jesus. That cannot be what Paul means. If that was true, then marriage would be a sin. You would be exchanging undivided devotion to Jesus for divided devotion to Jesus. You would be exchanging being all in for Jesus and sort of in for Jesus. Or being totally sold out or half the seats are still empty. Of course, it's possible. And of course, married Christians are called to be undividedly devoted to Jesus. Remember verse 35. That is his concern for all that he's writing to, not just those who are single. It was to secure in those who were married and those who were single, to secure in them undivided devotion to Jesus. Well, then How? How can you be married and undividedly devoted to Jesus? And I think the key is back up in verse 29. Go there with me now. In verse 29, here's what Paul wrote to those who were married. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. We introduced this last week. I spoke briefly about this last week. It may not be clear at first what Paul is talking about. There are things in this life and marriage is one of them that steal our devotion to Jesus. That's possible. It's possible for marriage and family to steal your devotion to Jesus. It's possible for marriage and family to distract you and take you away from your primary calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Paul's cautioning against that. When he says, let those who have wives live As though they had none. In other words, this relationship, marriage, is secondary to another relationship. This other relationship is more important. This other relationship is most important. It is the relationship that would and should exist whether or not you even have the other relationship, which is marriage. It is primary. This relationship, marriage, serves the other relationship. Your relationship to God. God is not for marriage. Marriage is for God. Many Christians live as if marriage is the pinnacle and then God is about supporting and making that marriage better. And there may be some truth in that, but it's backwards if we don't realize that that marriage is for God. That relationship is for the other relationship. That relationship serves the other relationship. God did not come to give you a happy marriage. God did not come to fulfill you in a marital relationship. God did not come to give you children and a family and fulfill those dreams. God came. God sent Jesus. To die and raise from the dead for your sin to give you Himself. To bring you into relationship with Himself. Which is why the church Christians are called the what of Jesus? The bride of Jesus. And He is the bridegroom. That is the primary relationship. And every other relationship, even the most important earthly relationship. Husbands, that's your wife. Wives, that's your husband. That's primary, earthly relationship. It's more important than your relationship to your children. It's primary. But there's a relationship beyond and above that. It's our relationship to God. God does not serve your marriage. Your marriage serves God. Marriage is not the primary relationship that is supported by God. Your relationship with God is primary and should be supported by your marriage. Your marriage should support and encourage your relationship to God and not primarily the other way around. So let me in light of this address one more time those of you who are single and married. Because I think there is application again for single people. For those of you who are not yet married, I know some of you are young and this is not even on your radar yet, but you would be wise to listen. And those of you who are getting close to the age, or maybe you already are at the age and level of maturity where you are marryable, this is even more urgent for you to consider. In light of what Paul is saying here, what are you looking for in a spouse? What will you one day look for in a spouse? What are you looking for in a husband? What are you looking for in a wife? What kinds of things are you thinking about? What are you considering? And in light of this, I would suggest that this is a very important question. Will he or she make you more devoted to Jesus? That's a question to ask. Will he or she make you more devoted to Jesus? Will he or she increase and improve your devotion to Jesus? Because that marriage is going to be meant to what? Serve your relationship with God. To serve your relationship with Jesus. So when considering a husband, when considering a wife, will this person make me love Jesus more Will this person improve my relationship with Christ? Will they increase my devotion to Jesus? This is a much bigger question than asking Are they a Christian? I would encourage us to raise our standards. Young men usually have two questions they ask Is she cute? And is she a Christian? And most young men, if she's really cute, the answer, is she a Christian, is simply answered by she goes to this church sometimes. And he's good. Is she really a Christian? That's always how people answer that. When cornered, when asked, hey, I've heard you've been spending time with so and so. Yeah, that's great. Is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? What's usually the answer? Something like, I think he goes to... Okay. Are they really a Christian? Do they read the Bible and pray? Do they sing to Jesus? Wholeheartedly? How do they talk what do their words sound like what what do they talk about what do they watch what do they listen to how do they treat others what what is their relationship to a local church who are they accountable to who is their pastor what do they believe what do they believe about the gospel What is their theology? What do they believe the Bible teaches about marriage and family? Do they hate sin? Is it obvious they hate sin? Do they love holiness? Do they love God? Do they love His Word? Do they love His worship? Do they love His standard? Do they want to know what God's standard is and to obey God's standard? Do they have a heart for the lost? Do they love other people? Those are all asking the same question. Are they a Christian? Because that is what a Christian is. Don't get me wrong. A Christian needs to go to church. A Christian needs to be in church every Sunday. Because you can't say you're committed to Christ and not His people. Committed to the head and not His body. But it's so much more than that. And it must be evident and work itself out in so many other ways. Will this person, those of you who are single. And young ladies and young men, this is what you will be looking for one day. Will this person make you more devoted to Jesus? Will this person increase and improve your devotion to Jesus? for well, those of you who are married you've made your choice that was a powerful amen <laughs> no i mean it that wasn't funny if you know the history that was a powerful amen for those of you who are married the goal of your marriage is that it would increase and improve your devotion to Jesus That's the goal of your marriage. The goal is not a great marriage. If you have a great marriage, great. I have a great marriage. And if you do, I'm so happy for you. I really am. But the goal is a great relationship with Jesus. And honestly, a bad marriage, you can still have a great relationship with Jesus. And a good marriage, you can have a great relationship with Jesus. And you can have a good marriage and a bad relationship with Jesus. It's about getting priorities straight. Those of you who are here with your spouse, you both are committed to Christ. You both are committed to one another. Your relationship should serve your relationship with Christ through how you love one another through helping one another, through ministering to one another, if you have children, through raising children together, ask yourself the question. Evaluate your marriage today. Are you more devoted to Jesus because of your spouse? I am. Does your marriage increase your devotion to Jesus? Mine does. Does your marriage improve your devotion to Jesus? I would say yes. And many of you here today, you would also say the same. My wife and I are helping one another. We're a great help to one another. She's a great help to me, at least. I shouldn't answer for her. We're pursuing holiness together. We want to please God more than anything. We are giving the gospel together. We're better together giving the gospel, complimenting one another to family and friends. Mostly family, often friends in the church. And sometimes unbelieving family and friends that we don't know very well. We are loving and raising six children very imperfectly, but very intentionally. And it has drawn us both closer to Christ. I am pastoring this church and could not do it without her. Trying to shepherd and minister to you, and could not do it without her. She is raising our children. She is training women to be healthy and happy, standing on the truths and promises of God. And so, this relationship serves the greater relationship. Our devotion to Jesus is improved and increased because of our devotion to one another. I am not Robert Murray McShane. She is not Amy Carmichael. Two, two single people that had an incredible impact on the church. I'm not Robert McShane. My wife is not Amy Carmichael. You may be. You may be. She is my Sarah Edwards, and I hope I'm her Jonathan. She is my Katie Luther, and I hope I'm her Martin. She is my Susanna Spurgeon, and I hope I am her Charles. But this relationship is to serve Jesus. She is my Kristen Myers, and I am her Eric. So whether you're married today, whether you're married today or single, May you be undivided in your devotion to Jesus. If you are single and you're free from the troubles and anxieties of marriage and family, then may you use that for God's glory. If you're married and you are helped and loved by a spouse, or even if you are not, may you use that for God's glory. That is the essence of Paul's practical words here. That is the deep concern behind his instruction, whether you are married or single, that you live in undivided devotion to the Lord. For those of us who are devoted to Jesus. This is the point of our service following every sermon. Where we respond with communion. Where we commune with Christ and we commune with one another. We do it in obedience to Jesus. We do it to remember what he has done. We do it to proclaim what he has done to one another. So let me read you Paul's words in this letter we're studying Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're here and you're visiting today, you are invited to take communion with us. If you are a baptized believer, if you've turned from your sin, you've placed your faith in Christ and you have been baptized in his local church. And if you are a part of a church, whether it is this church or another church that preaches the same gospel that you have heard here today, if that's you, you're invited to take communion with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve you. If you come forward and then take the bread and juice and hold on to them and return to your seat and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word today. We thank you for your word that is everything that we need for life. We ask that your Holy Spirit would activate this word in our hearts that it make us love you more, love others more, that it would increase and improve our devotion to Jesus. May you be glorified now as we remember and proclaim the sacrifice of your Son in our place so that we could be reconciled to You. In His name we pray. Amen.